Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey there, welcome to episode 50th of Sexology Podcast. I am so glad you're joining us today. I cannot believe that we're almost at our one, mo- one year anniversary. I wanted to share my deepest Gratitude toward you guys for tuning in every week and sending me all this wonderful emails and feedback and iTunes reviews. And I'm grateful for every single one of you guys that joined me in this journey. Today, we're going to talk about our narrative, the narrative we have around masculinity and how it impacts our sexuality. I first heard our guest today, Dan Griffin, in in a workshop in LA. He was talking about man's rule, which he's going to elaborate further in this interview and how that can negatively disable men in relationships. And it gets in the way of truly connecting with their partners. Dan Griffin is an internationally recognized author, thought leader, an expert on men's relationship and masculinity. Griffin's book, A Man's Way to Relationship, is the first book written specifically to help men create healthy relationships while navigating the challenge of the man rules. Those ideas men internalize at very young age about how to be real boys and men. In 2015, Dan was honored to be named a senior fellow at the world-renowned leader for treating addiction and trauma, The Meadows. Here's my conversation with Dan Griffin. 
Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am thrilled and excited to have Mr. Dan Griffin, recovery speaker and an author in our show. Dan, welcome to our show. Ah, thank you so much, Nazanin, for having me. I'm I'm very excited. Any t- opportunity to talk about sex, I'm all over it. Awesome, awesome. And I was sharing with our listeners that I heard one of your presentation in LA in the past, and it was just fantastic. So I'm very looking forward to this conversation. Thank you very much. Yes, me too. And um, it's uh, it's such a timely, timely. Uh, conversation in light of what's happening in our society right now. Absolutely. And it's just like you're talking about, I know in your books and also in the presentation I attended, you you were talking about this narrative that we have around gender, masculinity, and uh, this rules that we have around what is masculinity. So you have this term that's called man rules. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I have the Man Rules podcast. I've got a ebook that's going to be coming out. It might be an ebook. It might be a, a a more kind of hard copy book called The Man Rules: Rewriting the Rules for Men in the 21st Century. And all of that stems to I, I think it's important for me to provide the larger metaphor that you were alluding to this narrative because I, I think it's so important for us to begin to see how immersed we are in this, in some ways, lack of consciousness about gender. So I always talk about this concept called the water, and it just goes to this little story of two fish are at the bottom of the ocean. Another fish swims up, looks at them and says, hey, guys, how's the water? And then swims off. And the two fish look at each other and they say, what the hell is water? And and that is is a great, <laughs> That's awesome. it's a great metaphor for for us, like we are all fish in the water and we don't often see it. And gender is a very, very deep part of the water. And it's a deep part of the narrative. It's so deep that a lot of the narrative, or, or at least the narrative itself, begins to be written before the baby's even born. I mean, we we put so much emphasis on what's the sex and and we incorrectly refer to it as gender and we do these gender reveal parties. And if we find out we're having a girl, then we're going to treat the girl a certain way. And if we find out we're having a boy, then we're going to react to the boy and treat the boy a certain way. And then we know that the research shows that if you take the exact same baby and you put it in a blue blanket or you put it in a pink blanket, people respond to that baby, not based on the fact that it's the baby or they know the anatomy of the baby or just the baby itself. They respond to the blue blanket. And then what we also know is that in that experiment, and it's a fairly famous experiment, but in that experiment, what we also know is that the little boys were caressed less, they were held less, they were touched less, they were talked to in a rough, in a rougher, kind of more holder tone, they were allowed to be by themselves longer. And, you know, as a sexologist, you obviously know about attachment theory and have looked into attachment theory. I mean, to me, that's the beginning of attachment disorders right there is just how we handle that baby in the first 24 hours. So that's the narrative. And then we have these rules and they're unwritten rules, but we know them very well because every time I talk to an audience, we come up with the same rules. There's the man rules, there's the woman rules. And then there's these, just these in general rules for gender. Um, But the, the man rules 
are the ideas that we take on as boys and get enforced in many different varieties and many different directions about what it means to be a real man. And um, those rules run very, very deep. And the, you know, the biggest rules, the, the one that comes up the most for me, you know, I've, I've done a presentation similar to what we're talking about or what you saw, I mean, hundreds of times. And I always have the audience name the man rules. And 99% of the time, the first rule that comes up is don't cry. Big boys don't cry, real men don't cry. And then there's the other rules of don't be vulnerable, don't ask for help, don't share feelings other than anger. Sex is the only form of intimacy. Always win. You know, don't engage too much in relationships. Don't be gay. Don't be a girl. And, you know, I mean, it just kind of continues. And 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 there's, I mean, you saw the the presentation. So, I mean, there's a whole hour and a half deconstruction I do around the man rules and the woman rules, but that's kind of a quick overview. And, and I think what's important for us to realize is while those rules are clearly changing and men in the 21st century are allowed to show up very differently than ever before, there's a massive amount of confusion right now for so many men and women about when's, where, where, when's it safest and when is it appropriate and when am I going to be ostracized or accepted or loved based on how I show up as a man or a woman, not to mention the programming is so deep that we often find ourselves acting opposite or, you know, in contradiction to the man or the woman or the person that we want to be because those rules can be so overpowering. Um, And so I just advocate over and over again this idea of consciousness, that if we can be more conscious of it, we can choose. And if we can choose, we can move closer to the person that we really want to be. And, and, you know, what I say all the time is don't let the rules rule you. Like that's, that's the key is to know you have a choice as a human being about how much these rules are going to drive your life. But first you have to see them. And then you have to accept my premise as being valid that you have a lot more choice than you may think. And just so challenging, as you were talking about in the media, we are hearing all the stories of allegation around sexual assault, sexual uh, harassment toward women. And it just reminds me of part of that. It's like the, what we heard about, like kind of what you define as man's rule, kind of this sense of entitlement that was taught from childhood. So how do you, and I know that this, this controversial kind of added to this negative perspective that some people have around concept of sex addiction. What do you, how do you make sense of what's coming out of this, me, at the media these days? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of important pieces. The most important part is, you know, when I, when I do the man rules exercise, there's this sentence that I use in talking about the man rules. And I use that in a, I use that word in a very intentional way with the double meaning of a sentence in the sense that men are sentenced to this way of thinking about sex. And it's have as much sex as possible whenever possible with as many hot and different women as possible with as big of a dick as possible. Right. Like, like that's the sentence. 
And, and I, you know, I was seven, eight when I saw my first pornographic magazine. One of the ways that we bonded as young boys was to tell dirty jokes that my parents and some of not my parents, but my dad and some of the other adults would tell dirty jokes. We'd find pornography lying around. We were allowed to watch movies with no context of understanding sexually how the men were acting out. So the entitlement, I mean, it comes from the just the inherent entitlement that so many men are given by men and women about how we're raised and our value. We live in a very sexist and patriarchal society. And, you know, some people shut down when you say those words. But I mean, the truth is men still have the vast majority of the power. So that's patriarchal. And women still are easily diminished and dismissed in their attitudes, their ideas, their beliefs, their lives at a community you know, in a, fa- in a family, in a community, and in a larger political arena. And so that's the sexist part. So, like, how do we address that? And how, I mean, so Sarah Silverman, not sure if you're familiar oh, with her. Oh, I like, love her. Of, she's very funny. Yeah, she's very funny. And she's got a show on Hulu. And she's very good friends with Louis C.K. Right. And one of her questions was, and I think it's a question our, our society has to really wrestle with with so many issues but her ultimate question is is it possible to love someone who's done bad things and as an expert in sex addiction and sexology you know very well that the answer to that question is yes it's just not an easy answer and it's certainly not an easy process but is it possible so how do we how do we bring like, what, what's the line? Like, how do we make sure that we hold these people, men and women, who are perpetrating these behaviors, how do we hold them accountable? But how do we do it in a way without completely leaving them devoid of any humanity or any possibility of redemption or, or change because of their behavior? And at the same time, how do we not let men off the hook? for these behaviors or let women off the hook? And how do we truly create a safe place for women and men to come forward? I mean, a lot of people are talking about this being men as perpetrators and women as victims. And yet the people that are coming forward about the second most, the second biggest story to break and one of the more significant ones was Kevin Spacey. And the majority, if not all the people that have come forward about Kevin Spacey have been men. Right. And then Ter- Terry Crews came out and he talked about his experience. And then um, Anthony Edwards has come out and all of these are they're experiencing it as victims. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind. I don't know if any men have come forward. I can't think of any men who've come forward where the perpetrator has been a woman but I'm sure it's just a matter of time until that's also the case. Right. And I, I love that you're talking about the balance between accountability and like rejecting people from society. Because, you know, I feel like as a society, we have sometimes this binary kind of way of thinking that like the person is good or like horrible. We're not able to see the complexity of people's personality. And sometimes people like I feel like we are we're not helping others if we're not helping them to see their flaws and supporting them and kind of like helping them through this shame 
based kind of reaction they have because I see that they're in with sex therapy and sexual addiction community. I'm sure you're well aware of that. There is this controversial about if we're labeling someone as a sex addict, we are kind of relieving them from the responsibility of their action. Is that true? Well, I mean, that's an old argument in some ways because, I mean, as a person in long-term recovery from alcohol and other drug addiction and who's worked in that field for a very long time, that's been one of the classic arguments that people have used. And it's just, it's in many ways, if you really understand the treatment, if you understand the process, you know that that's an empty argument. But it's a fear that people have, and it's a very legitimate fear if they don't understand. So Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey immediately check themselves into treatment. Tiger Woods immediately checks himself into treatment. And the perception in our society is, oh, you screw up, you check yourself into treatment, and you're off the hook. What they don't know is the information that they're getting. If they're in a good treatment program, the information that they're getting is, you know what? You're not responsible for the disorder or the disease per se, but you are 100% responsible for your behavior. And if as a result of your addiction and you're acting out, you've done something that would require you to go to jail or prison or have to clean up a significant mess, you are 100% expected to do that. There's no get out of jail free card because you go to treatment and you deal with it. But that's what people are afraid of. And that's what people think is going to happen because they're not immersed in the process. And I don't know that we as a field do the best job at kind of really communicating that the pure and utter kind of foundation of a true recovery is personal responsibility. That is true. And I feel like I also work in the field of different kind of addictions. And you're right. I feel there's less stigma when it's alcohol or it's gambling. But when it's sex, people have this misconception, as you talked about, because most of the time when we hear about sex addiction, we're hearing it in the media and this people are checking into this like facilities. But as you know, it's just impacting many people from different parts of society, parts of ethnicity, and not necessarily everyone they can afford to go into inpatient. And you're doing the work in in 12-step programs, which I know you're a big advocate of. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what's really important, Azanine, is is to... Like, I have not been overly impressed with how the sex addiction field or the, the sexuality or, or sexology field has addressed men and has addressed men's issues. So what I mean by that is that it's amazing to me that truly deeply understanding male socialization is not an inherent part of how people work with men who come forward with showing any kind of sexual compulsivity or sexual addiction. That helping men to see, you know, entitlement and the objectification of women and homophobia, that that's not like just a core part of the conversation with these men to help them see the man roles, to help them kind of get I mean, one, to to mitigate some of the shame that some of these men feel because they think shame gets in the way of a lot of people to actually taking responsibility for their behavior. So you can have this larger concept, uh, context for the narrative like you're talking about 
And I think that's very powerful. But like all the treatment that I work with programs in creating and that I support is fundamentally connected to men looking at their entitlement, looking at their privilege, looking at hypersexuality. And I think if that's the case, then everything we're talking about, the men are going to get this information and they're going to be getting like a really clear understanding of why they have been acting this way and maybe why there's been this increased acting out and and why they thought this was going to give them some kind of satisfaction or some sense of of fulfillment but at, while at the same time understanding like you don't get a free pass you know for this and you really really need to take responsibility like who is the man you want to be kevin spacey what kind of man do you want to be and how is all of this reflective of the man you want to be and it's a lot more than an apology on twitter that's going to help you really find true redemption Right. That is, that's an excellent point. It's a matter of like helping people rediscover their values and creating a life that's congruent with that. And as you said, this rules that we have is kind of impacting our relationship and sexuality. And as you mentioned, women are struggling and men are kind of like following these rules as well. And it's, as you mentioned, for women, there there are more conversations around this construct. But when it comes to male sexuality, we don't have necessarily as much of a understanding. So for our listeners that they would like to kind of like change their behavior, maybe they're not engaging in out of control sexual behaviors, but they 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 would like to be more relational in their sexuality and they want to ch- change things around. What are some of the recommendations that you have for them? So for either the women or the men or wherever somebody's at on their kind of gender identity, I think what ultimately it is, is I always just tell people, look, it's about consciousness. It's not about this pressure to do things perfectly. It's just about consciousness. And it's about an ability to see the water. So what I recommend to anybody is to just sit down and write down, what are my unwritten rules around sex? Like for men, how well does the the sentence that I said earlier have as much sex as possible, whenever possible, with as many hot and different chicks as possible, with as big of a dick as possible? Like deconstruct that and say like, like look at how much that applies to you and how much pain it has caused you. Like so many men suffer just from the first part of that sentence, which is have as much sex as possible. There's so much pain that comes out of that. So for, I think consciousness comes out of examination and the examination is like, okay, what are my ideas and ideals about sex and how am I living up to them? For women, the exact same question. What are my ideas and unwritten rules around sex? What are the ones that work for me? What are the ones that don't work for me? And then how am I living up to the ones that I think work for me? How are they reflective of the woman I want to be? You know, for maybe for for women, one of the woman rules is, is validation comes from a man and being wanted by a man. And for a lot of women, it's not about owning your sexuality. It's that your sexuality is for other people. So if those are some of the unwritten rules for women, then how is that playing out in your life? And what would you like to do differently? And it can be kind of, it could be sloshing around in your head 
and you can have some awareness about it. But when you put it down on pen and paper and you begin to kind of look at a different level of intention around who you truly want to be in your area of your sexuality, it can really be transformative because all of a sudden now you've got like this this picture of like, okay, this is the man I want to be when it comes to my sexuality. How am I doing in that? Like what, how am I doing in this area? How am I doing in this area? And rating myself and then maybe looking back at, you know, maybe I'm doing this for like six months. I look back at how I rated myself a month ago and now where I'm at now. And I've made a lot of progress in this one area, but maybe not a lot of progress in the other. I don't think you can move forward if you don't put a conscious attempt right. to create, you know, that person. Right. And this awareness and examination is essential part of like recovery or re-examining where you are with things. When I sometimes hear from my friends and clients that they, they would like to change how they relate sexually and they're kind of examining, they see things, there are things that they want to change, but it's part of, they feel it's part of their erotic template now. And they're not able to have like a fulfilling sex life unless they're, those things are part of it. Do you believe that erotic template is something that we can change or we can modify? And uh, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, I want to be really clear. Like, I am not an expert like you're an expert or other people are an experts in this area of sexuality. So, I mean, I've, I've put a lot of thought into it and I certainly am passionate about it. But I, I haven't studied it in depth. But my take on erotic templates is probably different because as a sociologist and somebody who's not immersed in the paradigm, I'm not I don't know how helpful the idea of erotic templates is for helping people kind of move to greater consciousness or a greater sense of empowerment around their sexuality. Um, but at the same time, like. I don't know how deeply ingrained it can be. Like, is, is are some of the trauma interventions, can they help with rewiring some of that? Um, if it's connected to sexual trauma and sexual abuse and those erotic templates have kind of come out of that and somebody wants to do something different, can they do kind of trauma work around that to see what might open up for them? You know, I think that is possible. So I just, I don't, I don't know enough about how that falls, but I guess what I would say is give it a shot. <laughs> you know, I mean, like before you decide that you're wired a certain way, how much have you really made an effort to change things? How much have you really made an effort to get into an engaged conversation with a mentor or somebody you trust or a therapist about who you want to be sexually. What what shame is keeping you from being really open and honest about it? What are you not talking about with your partner? What haven't you done to truly examine, you know, what kind of sexuality and how you want to express your sexuality? I mean, until somebody I think has really moved in that space and then finds that it's like this intractable sort of energy or attraction or, you know, inclination, disposition, whatever you want to call it, un until they've done that, then, you know, I, I would be reluctant to just kind of say that is your erotic template and that's that. 
I I agree with you because I feel sometimes there is this inflexibility that people have that this is the only thing that's going to work for me. And part of it, it's because like this is the a fantasy they had from childhood and they kind of re-engaged on that and masturbated to it. So it got stronger. Part of sometimes I know as sex therapists, when people talking about it, we're exploring the root of it. If that's something they want to change, the power is taken from that fantasy or there are like I'm coming from a sex positive background, which I'm sure you are as well. And it's just there are behaviors that you can engage in. There are alternative sexual behavior for like exhibitionism uh, in my experience. But it's like it needs to be with a consensual partner. And it's just like how you're engaging in that behavior. What is the context of it is very important. Well, I'm very much in the sex positive camp. In fact, I don't know how you can uh, support or um, embrace healthy sexuality without coming from a sex positive perspective. But I think there can be extremes. There can be extremes in the sex addiction side that kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and they create this fear-based relationship to sex and sexuality. There are individuals, and I've got some of them as friends and some of them in, as colleagues, who really have experienced the, the depth of sexual addiction, and they're rightfully afraid of not having a core, powerful structure in what are allowed and not allowed behaviors. But then there's the other extreme, I think, with some of the sex positive, where the folks completely deny the idea of sex addiction. They completely deny that, you know, their only interpretation is that anytime you talk about sex addiction or you talk about sexual compulsivity in any kind of clinical or therapeutic way, if you're, uh, if you're addressing it as a compulsive behavior or an addiction, then you're not, you can't be sex positive, that, that somehow they're mutually exclusive. And I hear that rhetoric sometimes too. And it's, I think it's, it's, it's about an honest exploration. I mean, there are a lot of people who play out their trauma in, you know, the quote unquote alternative sexual behaviors. Well, if that's true, then at least, you know, give yourself the gift of looking at that and healing that and then deciding like, okay, do I still want to engage in this behavior? But to just say like, because somebody's behavior they, they choose something a certain way that there's not necessarily an opportunity to look more at that choice. I mean, you don't have to. You, you don't have to. You can do whatever you want. Like you said, as long as it's consensual and it's not with, you know, it's with somebody, it's a, with an adult who can actually consent. As, as long as it's consensual and there's no power differential to, to really in, compromise any sense of consensuality, then it's you know, then I think it's like you explore it and and look what works for you and, and find what fits for you. But don't write off the idea that there could be some there could be some opportunities for healing there that don't necessarily have to pathologize the behavior, but that the behavior could at least be a reflection of some of the wounds that could heal. 
Right. And I love that that you mentioned that it might work for some people and it might not work with others. And I see it all the time with different kind of like fictions. For example, one of the work I, I do is around eating disorders and someone who's struggling with binge eating and how we incorporate those forbidden foods like slowly and mindfully. So this is definitely not something that people would do after a couple months of being in recovery. And that's something that just they need to kind of explore it further. Whether how much of the past behavior they feel it's okay to incorporate to their healthier sexual behaviors. So one of the things that I always hear from people is they want to be curious that to know how is the man in recovery from sexual addiction, sexual compulsivity might think and react differently from someone who is in the midst of their addiction. No, I think that's such an important question because. I don't think you can be a man in recovery, especially if you identify as heterosexual, that you can't transform how you view women. Like whether you get that information in the treatment program effectively or really to the extent that you need it, you're not going to stay on a path of recovery if there's not a transformed idea about how you view women. And irrespective of how somebody identifies, you know, sexually, I don't think you can stay on a path of recovery and personal growth if you don't transform your understanding of sexuality. That's probably a given. But for men, and this is where I think the field really has not done a great job. If you give men the gift of really being able to look at male socialization and look at how deeply these rules run, but to also kind of help them see like, this is not because there's something inherently wrong with you, but it's a lot of it has to do with how you've been raised. Then you can like take a really powerful look at entitlement and privilege and homophobia and internalized, you know, and sexism and all of that. And, and I think that's what changes for men. I think that's what transforms because as men, if our primary mechanism for intimacy is sex, we lose so much. So what happens for men is they begin to really unravel the experience of intimacy. And you might remember this from my talk. I talk about this concept called the sex funnel. Right. And as part of the man rules, basically we take all these experiences of attraction and closeness and affection and intimacy and anything that has to do with connection and, and, and intimacy and we put it in this funnel and it comes out as something connected to sex. So part of, I think, what happens for men in, in, the, in a broader sense of personal growth and recovery, and whether you identify as sexually addicted or sexual compulsive or just as a man who's on a personal growth kind of journey, there's no way you can do that without looking at sex and sexuality. And, and when you do, I think you just get a much fuller, broader deeper and much more fulfilling experience of intimacy. That's what, such a beautiful way of putting it. And it's just more. So I love that you're talking about how recovery is just more about a more, uh, more than just stopping the behavior and just like being kind of this, being on this journey of sex, self exploration and redefining who you are. So I noticed we are toward the end of our time and I want to make sure our listeners can get a hold of you. I know you have a number of different podcasts and the publications. So what would be the best way? for our listeners to contact you? 
Well, I think the best way, because all my contact information, my social media information, I mean, I definitely want to give a plug to the Man Rules podcast. I love doing a podcast. I love the podcast I'm doing. We're really taking on directly the whole Me Too movement. And I've got some wonderful experts and, and colleagues and friends that are coming on and talking about this, a lot of women, a lot of men. Um, and so the Man Rules podcast would definitely be one. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. But then just go to my website. If you like what I'm talking about, you know, go to the website, go to dangriffin.com. And it's G-R-I-F-F-I-N. Go to the website and just see what's there. And we're adding content, you know, every month. We're getting ready to develop a bunch of online content. And I'm going to be launching an online uh, course for men and relationships. And so there's some some exciting stuff. So that's that's the best way. And then sign up on our list and then you'll, you know, get regular communication. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll make sure I leave a, a link to the show notes, to your podcast, to your website. And thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thanks uh, so much for having me on. I think it's wonderful that you've got this podcast and this voice. And I love how you're doing it across cultures and and really for a broader audience and bringing this message of healthy sexuality, you know, to a, to a, a great community. Appreciate that. Have a great day. Thank you. I hope my conversation with Dan gave you some insight about how this internalized ideas and values that we have from childhood related to our sexuality around our gender uh, might impair our relationship and might get in the way of truly connecting with our sexual partner. I really liked his recommendation of like writing down your values and what kind of person you want to be sexually, regardless of what you were taught as a child and kind of taking an honest look at it to see if this is serving you in your life or not. Anyhow, uh, we're at the end of our show. I wanted to remind you to, you can record your questions in our website. There's this purple tab that asks your question from Dr. M. And uh, I'm looking forward to answer those questions and have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.